Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This week, we continue our series of special episodes featuring highlights from panel discussions during BIO's virtual annual conference in May 2021. The session, Researching Underdocumented Lives, featured authors Gayatra Bahadur, Channing Gerald Joseph, and Pamela Newkirk. The panel was moderated by BIO member Kavita Das. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the BIO 2021 panel on researching overlooked and underdocumented lives. My name is Kavita Das, and as an author of a biography of an overlooked woman of color artist, I'm excited to be in conversation with our esteemed researchers and writers today. I'll introduce them and we'll get into the conversation in just a moment. But I wanted to let you know that if you have any questions to please put them in the chat tab at the bottom of your screen and we'll try to get to as many as possible. And uh, with that, I wanna introduce our panelists for today. So this panel, as you know, continues our plenary conversation, the wonderful conversation that was had by Annette Gordon-Reed and David Blight earlier today, delving into overlooked lives. And we're going to delve more deeply into the particular challenges and rewards of researching overlooked lives. And with that, I want to first introduce Gaitra Bahadur, uh, who is an award-winning writer, critic, and journalist. Her book, Cooley Woman, a personal history of Indian indenture in the Caribbean was shortlisted for Britain's Orwell Prize for Artful Political Writing in 2014. A journalism professor at Rutgers Newark and a former newspaper reporter, she writes for the New York Times Book Review, the New York Review of Books, The New Republic, The Nation, and Dissent, among other publications. Her work has been recognized with literary residencies at the McDowell Artists Colony, Italy's Bellagio Center, and fellowships from Harvard and British Library and the New York Public Library. And we also have Pamela Newkirk, who is an award-winning journalist and NYU professor whose work examines the contemporary and historical portrayals of African-Americans in popular culture. She is the author most recently of Diversity Inc., The Failed Promise of a Billion Dollar Business, which Time Magazine included in its 2019 must-read list and spectacle, The Astonishing Life of Oda Benga, which was a New York Times Editor's Choice, awarded the NAACP Image Award and the Hurston Wright Legacy Award, and listed among the best books of 2015 by NPR, the Boston Globe, and the San Francisco Chronicle. And finally, we also have Channing Gerard Joseph here, who is a winner of both the, I never know if it's winning or whiting. Whiting. Uh, Thank you so much. Whiting Creative Nonfiction Grant and the Leon Levy Center for Biography Fellowship for his forthcoming book, House of Swan, Where Slaves Became Queens and Changed the World. The book follows the untold true story of William Dorsey Swan, an African-American man born into slavery who became the world's first self-described drag queen and the leader of possibly the world's earliest known gay liberation organization. Joseph's work has appeared around the globe in the New York Times, The Guardian, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and many other publications. He teaches journalism at USC Annenberg, and I wanted to ask you, when exactly can we expect the book? It's next year? Uh, yes, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Okay, we're, we're awaiting it with eager anticipation. Um, so thank you all for being here. And I did want to just mention, I had referenced the plenary conversation that happened. It was a great conversation between David Blight and Annette Gordon-Reed. And at the center of it was a discussion and question of what is an overlooked life and who is an overlooked figure. Um, You know, in their conversation, they even suggested that perhaps even presidents are overlooked, you know, if you find new information. And I will say that when I was conceptualizing this panel and thinking about it, I definitely was defining it a bit more narrowly as those who have been overlooked because they have been and perhaps still are marginalized due to historic racism and inequities. So that's, you know, just to, I wanted to frame our conversation with that definition in mind, you know, I certainly, in, in terms of our speakers today, there's a great deal of expertise in this. So we're gonna jump right in. And I wanted to start by asking 
Pamela and Channing, when did you come to learn of your respective, you know, subjects, Odebenga and William Dorsey Swan, and what compelled you to write their biographies? And if you want to say a little bit about them for those who might not be familiar, since they have been historically overlooked, that would be great. Well, for me, um, I became aware of Odebenga actually through my literary agent. I wanted to write about that period, the turn of the century. And, you know, we often talk about what African-Americans experienced in the Deep South during this period, you know, the epidemic of lynchings and the Black Codes. But we don't often talk about places like New York City and, and what was happening along racial lines in this so-called progressive city during the progressive era. And so when she told me about Odebenga, I initially resisted that because he was this young African who was exhibited in the Bronx Zoo Monkey House in 1906. So only after I read accounts of what had happened to him, and they did not ring true to me. Like in a New York Times article, he was depicted as the friend of the man who brought him to New York, but only Odebenga ends up in the Bronx Zoo Monkey House. And then there was a book written by the grandson of the man who actually captured Odebenga in the Congo to bring to the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904 to exhibit with other so-called primitive people. He wrote a book which also characterized his grandfather and Odebenga as friends. And so I wanted to go into the archives to see if such a friendship could be corroborated by the archival evidence. And what I found in the archives was so shocking to me. And from then, I wanted to be there to tell Odebenga's story based on archival research. And so I was compelled to tell the story after I saw the way so many powerful people had for a hundred years told the story through lies and deception and, <laughs> um, you know, willful intention to manipulate the historical record, including the Bronx Zoo, which for years just kind of sanitized the whole episode. So until your literary agent mentioned, you, you did not know of Odebenga. Had never heard of him. And what I had heard made me not want to tell that story because right. It seemed like he was complicit with his own degradation, sort of like a circus act. And like, why would I want to write about that? But then when I saw that he was actually kidnapped, captured, and so egregiously exploited by so many powerful people in New York City at the turn of the 20th century for such a atrocity to have occurred at this world-class, you know, so-called scientific place, I really felt compelled to tell that story. You know, we're talking about overlooked people and overlooked lives, and it's far more difficult to tell those stories because it's not like I could go to Yale and find Odebenga's papers <laughs> in the library, right? So right. it's like you have to do some kind of reverse strategy of looking I found him in the papers of the powerful, in the letters where I could piece together his story through what they were secretly saying in real time about what was happening to him. So over the course of five years, I was pretty much able to document his movement every single day, <laughs> you know, during that period, because so many people had their hands on him and were writing about him and conspiring and actually talking about how they were exploiting him. And then publicly, they were saying something totally different. It was a challenge initially, but it was also more exciting to be able to expose something that had been this like major cover up for a hundred years. Mm -hmm. Like the Bronx Zoo just apologized yeah. last summer, finally, for what they had done for all of these years, even after my book came out, they just shut down. They would not comment on it. Reporters would call them. There was no comment. And so finally last year in the wake of the heinous killing of George Floyd and with so many other institutions being called out, they finally decided to apologize. Wow. Thank you for that look back through that. And Channing, what about you? 
My story uh, of discovering William Dorsey Swan sort of begins with my obsession early on in life with trying to learn more about my genealogy, my African-American genealogy. I am not related to William Dorsey Swan. That's not the story I'm telling, but um, it began with that obsession. And as I built my family tree, you know, I still had some older relatives who were still alive and I was doing oral histories with them. I began to build a family tree and look at it and say, where would I appear on this family tree? What would a Black queer ancestor look like? And I sort of dwelled upon that point and began just piecing together, you know, any record that I could discover that seemed to relate to the concept of what a Black queer ancestor might be. People who appeared in the past to defy the gender conventions of the era that they lived in, or people who seemed to exemplify same-sex attraction or romance, but who also experienced um, racial categorization as Black. So I just began to build uh, documentation, sort of randomly at first. And one of the early documents that I found was a newspaper article. Much of my research just begins with newspapers. And it was an 1888 newspaper story about a police raid on what was called a drag a drag party or a drag ball. William Dorsey Swan was the host of this ball. And I was fascinated and said to myself, I've never heard of something called drag happening in this era, um, let alone, you know, it's led by Black people. That's fascinating. It's not in New York, it's Washington, D.C. All these sort of surprising things came together. And um, I initially, actually for years, I said to myself, I hope that and believe that somebody else is is researching this and can't wait to read more about it, can't wait to see the book. <laughs> um, and um, it took me quite, quite some time. Eventually I sort of built up the courage to reach out to some other scholars who were working on related topics and ask them if they knew about it. And they said, never heard of this, that sounds fascinating. So um, that really, revealed to me that I needed to be the person to pursue the story myself. And just as uh, Professor Newkirk pointed out, you know, it, it was a matter of creatively sort of thinking, where can I find the resources that I need to discover more about this person's life? I always begin with uh, newspapers, those newspapers, because the parties often, or not often, I don't, we don't know how often they were raided. We know they were raided a few times. <laughs> those raids give us the information that, that we have about them. So I started with those raids. Some of the documentation in there is really critical. It lists the people who were arrested, lists sometimes their ages, sometimes where they lived, the places where the, where the raids occurred. I sort of start there and build out. And eventually it leads me to census records. It leads me to diaries that mention them. It leads me to papers by powerful people. This is Washington, D.C., where the story is based. Papers by powerful people for whom they worked. Um, you know, they were oftentimes servants. Uh, Swan and his cohort were servants to the elite of Washington. So they, most of them had been formerly enslaved people. Sometimes they were mentioned in letters. Sometimes they were, they were mentioned in other documents. So if you like research, <laughs> if you like uh, sort of uh, not knowing where your next piece of information is, is gonna be, you know, I think that taps into the investigative journalism piece of it, right? So if you're really interested in sort of creatively looking for where you can find out that next piece of information, pick a person who's been overlooked like Swan and, and Oda Benga. Right. Yeah. And then get comfortable. <laughs> With the discomfort. <laughs> the discomfort. Um, we're going to talk more about the, the research and, and archives and stuff. Uh, Gayutra, I wanted to ask you, you know, how did you learn of your great-grandmother Sujaria's story? And how did you decide to tell her story alongside those of other migrant indentured women from South Asia to, to the Caribbean, just to even take that approach. Thank you. Uh, so first of all, I apologize if you hear the sounds of construction all around me. This is the sound of spring in Jersey City, unfortunately. <laughs> um, I first heard about my great-grandmother, about her existence when I was in my early 20s and just out of journalism school. I was born in Guyana and came to the U.S. when I was six. And then my family had not really gone back to Guyana much growing up. But after graduation, my father took me on this trip to Guyana. And because I was obsessed with sort of not only genealogy, but identity, I asked him about our connection to India. That is how people read me. They look at me and they say, oh, you're from India. But it's a lot more complicated than that. 
And so my father told me, you know, our closest link to India is his grandmother. And this is what he said about her. She was a pregnant woman traveling alone. And he knew her when he was a boy. He helped take care of her when she was ill, but she died before I was born. So I never knew her. I first learned about her when I was 21. I sort of went off and had this career working as a daily newspaper reporter for a decade, put it to the side, would kind of pull string on it just out of fascination with her for say 10 years. And then I was laid off by the Philadelphia Inquirer and had time on my hands. So that's when I started looking into her story. And by that, I mean, uh, going to Guyana and finding um, ship records. Um, Okay, so I should back up and say, my family is part of a history of indenture, which was a successor system to slavery in the British Empire. And it involved more than 2 million people who were trafficked to plantations around the world, um, including to the Caribbean. About half a million people went to the Caribbean more people then arrived in the, in the United States through Atlantic slavery, and my family is part of that history. So um, <laughs> when I started pulling string on her, seeking out documents that might tell me something about her life and kind of open up really the mystery behind that simple sentence from my father. She was a pregnant woman traveling alone. Simple sentence, but not so simple. I mean, there's so much in there that I wanted to know more about. How did she come to be doing this in the early 20th century? So the answer to your question directly is, I was fascinated by her, but the records would only take me so far, right? I found her emigration pass, which told me many, many interesting things about her background, where she was from, her next of kin, her caste background, Um, pregnant four months was written in pencil across the top. I learned that she had a burn mark on her left leg. I know all of that, but I don't know the fundamental things, which is the questions of, you know, why did she leave? Why was she alone? And I really couldn't really build a book around just her because of those dead ends. I decided that it, it had to be a collective biography and, um, She's a forgotten figure in our family. (laughs) She's um, a life that, the sort of life that isn't recorded and written about, but that applied to all of the women who were like her. They were all forgotten figures. Um, From a practical standpoint, I mean, that's the moral reason to do it. They are all forgotten figures. So if I'm telling her story, I'm telling the story of 200,000 other women who fit this category. In terms of narrative, practically speaking, what that choice allowed me to do was to tell her story up to the point that I could and then use proxies. So, you know, I know she traveled for three months by ship from India to the Caribbean. And this was a journey that's been written about by poets and writers as a sort of middle passage. So I don't know a whole lot about what happened to her on that ship, except that my grandfather was born on the ship. But I do have colonial office records, very detailed records on the journeys of about 100 ships, right? So I worked with those documents to to excavate stories of particular women to tell their story, describe what happened to them, but also imagine her into their lives, situate her next to them in that cargo hold on that ship. So yes, I suppose it was an approach out of need, right? Exigency. I had to take that approach because the archives would only take me so far. That's actually perfect segue to the next question, which is about archives, you know, traditional views of archives and archival research is, you know, you picture libraries of published and personal papers, just, you know, reams, and that doesn't always apply or apply in the same way when you're researching marginalized lives. Um, At first, I was going to say you have to expand on the notion of archives, but I actually think in listening to all of you, it's about supplementing and also subverting. Um, Each of you have talked about some of the records that you're looking at are quite honestly from the perspective of the oppressor. So you have to deal with how much do you want to trust those 
records, especially, um, you know, as a biographer. So I just would love to hear more about how you kind of wrestled and reckoned with this. Um, Gayatra, you kind of touched upon how it helped even shape the narrative. Uh, But I'd love to hear from each of you on this. Yeah, for me, I was kind of fortunate that in the archives were all of these letters exchanged between the people who were exploiting Odebenga. And they were candid accounts of what was happening to him behind the scenes, right, outside of the public eye. They were even talking about how they would construct a narrative for the public (laughs) to deceive. So all of that was like voluminous documents because fortunately it was during a time, and I think we all are writing about the same period, right? So it's before people were using telephones and telegraphs as much. So it, like there weren't telephones. So they were writing like sometimes three and four times a day. Mm-hmm. And so I had access to voluminous real-time accounts about what was happening to Odebenga, like almost minute to minute. And Channing, or should I say Professor Joseph, had used the word powerful. Like when you're dealing with powerful people, you're going to find just a wealth of documents, right? Because that's whose papers are collected. So if you want to know what happened to an exploited person, look to the papers of the person who exploited them. You know, while I was in the Bronx Zoo for months going through these papers, these letters, it was just like confessions. And then on top of that, I found the papers of the man, Samuel Werner, who had actually went hunting for so-called pygmies, the diminutive people of the Central African forest. And he was saying, like, maybe I'll go with a cannon. Um, He's going into these villages with the help of Leopold's, like, henchmen, and he's kidnapping people's children. And he's talking about, in in letters and articles, how these families are crying through the night as he's capturing their family members. And so these were just like unvarnished accounts because these people didn't matter enough to even try to cover up the story. It was only later that they even felt the need to kind of whitewash what had happened. But in real time, it was fine. Like, this is what you could do to powerless people. And Mm -hmm. so between those letters and anthropological field notes, I found the papers of a anthropologist who had been in the Congo at the same time Werner was there with Odebenga and he was writing to his mother about Odebenga and how intelligent he was and how smart these people are. So while they were being depicted as savages, here was an anthropologist in real time (laughs) talking about just how smart and brave and like all of these adjectives about them. So I think all of us had to piece together, like you're taking scraps, you know, um, from so many different places, from census data, um, ship passenger records to find out how did he travel? How was he characterized on the passenger records? And once you get enough of these scraps, then you're able to like weave together a credible narrative that's based on the archive. And, you know, there are limits, right? Um, in a whole book about Odebanga, that's why I was surprised anyone ever called it a biography. I felt really good about that because it's really a social history, but don't tell anyone. Like, don't tell Leon <laughs> Levy. <laughs> that is really a social history. I only have, I think it was five words of Odebanga in the entire book. Mm-hmm. And the words are, me no like America, four words, that he said to a New York Times reporter who's like mockingly asking him, how do you like it? He's in a cage in the monkey house. And his only words were me no like America, which is heartbreaking. But I was able to capture his world that he inhabited and how people are looking at him and his reactions and the horror of his experience could be found in the accounts of the people who are engaging him, whether it was New York Times reporters who were writing about him every single day for the entire time that he was in the zoo, 
journalists from all over the country were flocking to the zoo to experience this global spectacle. Thank you. Channing or Gaitra? I'll go next if you you like. Um, So um, fascinating to hear from Gayutra and, and Pamela. I just feel like this is an important calling that we're all engaged in. And um, it's wonderful to, to hear both of you speak about your work. So for me, in terms of the, the great challenge of building an archive, really, the great, great, great challenge, um, it was quite difficult. <laughs> I'll say that. It wasn't such an easy thing to go from a newspaper record to other archival sources, but with persistence, it is possible. For example, one of the problems that I faced was some of the news stories refer to William Dorsey Swan as Dorsey Swan. Others refer to him as William D. Swan. Others refer to him as William Swan. Others refer to him as William Dorsey, no Swan. Sometimes Swan is two N, sometimes it's one N. So confirming that all of those were the same person, it was an interesting exercise to go through every sort of hit on a William Dorsey I could find in the time period and try to figure out whether that was him or not. <laughs> and through each one, I, you know, based on if, if I could figure out whether the person lived or whether they were identified as white or black or what other people they were associated with in the article, I could essentially rule, rule them out or not. Um, city directory records and census records were great supplements. Mm-hmm. City directory uh, records were important because so I was able to confirm social relationships that were suggested by the newspaper articles by confirming that uh, through going through year after year, Washington DC city directory records, uh, looking at the sort of reverse engineering and saying, I know this person lived at this address. Let me look up this, all instances of this address in the city directories. And then I could confirm, oh, everybody was living in this house, right? So from year to year, I could say, oh, they're living in this house this year. So-and-so moved. The next year, you know, a couple of years later, they moved back together. Those are, yes, uh, you yeah. know, they were living within five minutes of each other. Right? I would look at the addresses and then put them in Google Maps. And it was quite extraordinary, uh, <laughs> extraordinarily uh, extensive work. Yes. <laughs> so um, all of that sort of helped me figure out who Swan's relatives were, um, actually. So I figured out, you know, he was sometimes living with other people named Swan. I was able to, through, through that connection, determine, um, the Swan family is originally from this section of Northern Maryland. That led me to contacting the city officials in that very small town. I met with the mayor. I met with the official town historian. They said, oh, we'll, we'll take you in this basement full of all kinds of uh, diaries and old photos and stacks of pictures and books. And um, so that's one example of, of how some of this happened. Another example is, you know, Swan... Swan was associated with a person named Pierce, fascinating in his own right. Pierce hosted a a ball of swans and was later arrested and identified in the newspaper as hosting a a drag ball, was fired from his post as a a messenger in the the patent office in uh, Washington, DC, which is a, a hugely prestigious role for a black man, a formerly enslaved person at that time. Fascinating person, originally from Georgia. I knew he was from Georgia. Through a random Google search, I found that Pierce Lafayette was also one of the characters being researched by another historian. And this other historian had tons of information about Pierce's life on the plantation in Georgia, because Pierce was a former slave of Alexander H. Stevens, who was the VP of the Confederate States. Wow. And so there are tons of letters all about Pierce's life, you know, from when he was a boy through the time he comes to Washington, D.C. So I had all the information about Pierce, Pierce's life in Washington. Um, this other story had all the information about Pierce's life prior to Washington. And we came together and were able to build this storyline of his life. And anyway, that's important to my story because Pierce is a big character in the book because he's associated with one. So anyway, there's no formula for how to do it. You've got to figure out. Yeah. Okay. And the, there's, no, <laughs> there's no straight line, right? No straight line. No whatsoever. straight line. Yeah, I don't think that it's a it's a coincidence or accident that all of you have a journalism background. 
So as much as you have a foot in academia, you have a background in journalism because you encounter dead ends and contradictions and you just kind of navigated. Gayitra, what about you? You were starting to talk about this in your opening remarks. Yeah, a paper is of the powerful. I think that might be the the phrase for the afternoon because I had a substantial archive to work with. I mentioned that there were ship records, right? So every time a ship landed at its destination, there were reams of papers filed. The surgeon superintendents aboard the ships whose job it was to look after the indentured, they filed a report. The captain's diaries were sometimes included in these reports, the immigration agent general. A lot of paper to work with. Um, There were also uprisings on the plantations where the indentured worked, and there were was, of course, a report on the uprising. Um, There were also overseers, Scottish and Irish overseers, who were sleeping with the Indian women on the plantations, which was against the rules. So whenever that was happened and somebody complained about it, there was paperwork. So I had all of that to work with. But as you were saying, Pam, you know, there is this one narrative that arises from that archive. And there's something kind of wrong fundamentally with the representations. So I had that problem as well. Um, So about 30% of the indentured were women. And this is all across the British Empire from the Caribbean to Fiji and Mauritius. Because there was a shortage of women on the plantations, that sort of disrupted the power dynamics in interesting ways. And women were to some extent able to choose partners. There were also overseers who were assigning them partners, but because, again, scarcity economy, (laughs) they were able to leave one man for another. And in reaction to that, there was a series of really brutal murders and attacks against the women by their partners or would-be partners with their machetes or cutlasses from the cane fields. So the narrative that emerges from the papers of the powerful is that these women are wanton, immoral, sexually promiscuous, (laughs) right? So that is is what I had to work with and against. And so to trouble that archive, I had to expand my definition of it to also include oral histories to the extent that they existed with the the last living indentured servants, family histories as well, and literature. Uh, So the great Hindu epic, the Ramayan, for instance, is a story of exile and women's honor tested and was also hugely important as the kind of living literature of the people on the plantations. So I used that epic in an interesting way, um, situating my This is the most speculative and daring passage in the book. I sort of imagine my great-grandmother, who had three marriages, listening to that story. And, you know, the iconic sort of moment of the Ramayan is where Sita, who's been kidnapped by a demon, um, is rescued. But then her husband thinks that her honor has been compromised and that she slept with the demon. So she has to prove her chastity, right? So I imagine my great-grandmother sitting on the plantation late at night, listening to the Ramayan told, and how does she see herself now? She's left India and one husband behind, met another husband on the ship, gets transferred to another plantation and has a third husband there. As her descendant, I had to give myself permission to speculate about how that narrative Um, makes her feel, right? Um, And just one last example of how an archive can be redefined. Um, I interviewed a woman on Long Island, a 96-year-old woman who was born during the period of indenture. Indenture ended in 1920. So she was born, I think, in 1914. She wasn't indentured herself, but she lived in the plantation barracks with the indentured during the period of indenture. So she had this amazing tattoo on her arm that a lot of older Indo-Caribbean women I noticed had had this tattoo. And I asked her, what's that? And she said, she kept saying, Sita Kirasoy, Sita Kirasoy, Sita Kirasoy. It means Sita's kitchen. So this is a tattoo in North India in the late 19th century that when you married, you were inked with this tattoo. And without it, you couldn't cook for your husband. Right. So it's this tattoo is representative of uh, wifely devotion. 
right? Sita again being the symbol of chastity and all, all the good things, all the, all the virtues of womanhood. So that tattoo had survived the crossing. And I mean, I don't have one, my mother doesn't have one, but for a few <laughs> generations, it persisted. So what does this mean? You know, what does this mean about how the women saw themselves and their relationship to, you know, this narrative of promiscuity? I read it as a sign of the persistence of family. The institution of family had been completely like broken apart by the institution of indenture, yet it remained important for certain women to, to have this tattoo, which represents the importance of family. So that tattoo became part of my archive. Yeah, I love how you've talked elsewhere about this book being a speculative history. And, you know, the notion of biography and social history, I feel like with overlooked figures, I think it requires social history to tell their, to tell their story fully. So, you have to tell the story but, around them. Around, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But exactly. also the use of the personal, and I love how Saidiya Hartman talks about this. I mean, slavery has its afterlives, indenture exactly. has its afterlives. So my mother's life, my life is an archive of their lives because we have inherited that yeah. harm. That's a very important and beautiful point. Um, I am amazed. I feel like we just are getting into this conversation. Um, and I want to ask one last question before I kind of turn it over to questions that are coming in into the chat. So I would love to ask all of you, what has been the impact of your research and your biography on the legacy of your subject you know, has it sparked renewed interest in their life? I know some of you have ended up connecting with others who are doing similar research. Um, has it brought new awareness and audiences to, to these people and to, you know, others like them? Well, since I've been answering first, we'll just stick with that order. <laughs> well, I was really delighted when the state of Virginia um, installed a historical marker, highway marker uh, to Otabanga to note that he lived there died there. Um, he had spent his last 10 years in Lynch, Lynchburg, and it is the one place in this country where he was actually embraced by the African-American community, given a proper funeral and burial, like he was loved in Lynchburg. And so it did spark a renewed um, interest in his life. Uh, there's a big search going on there now to find his final resting place, because the place where he was initially buried is like overgrown and so anyway people are looking for it because they want to give him a proper headstone and um and as i said the bronx zoo finally came clean on its role in the tragedy of his life um, while he was in new york city and i think this whole interest in um in history and like the true history of these overlooked people because so much of our history has been top down told by the powerful, right? History is the story of the victors. And so the the story of the people who were exploited, marginalized, just treated as nothing in their lives. Now there's renewed interest in those stories. And I think all of the work that we've done, I think is um, an outgrowth of of that kind of interest in in marginalized lives. Um, Because then, and only then do we get to something approximating the true story of America, right? Because you can't tell the story of this country when you have excised these people from the record. And so it's exciting work also um, to, to tell the story of overlooked lives, you know, because you, you learn so much more about that person. Like you're learning so much more about a period and about, you know, the players and you're looking at powerful people in new ways because they've gotten away with telling these (laughs) glossed over stories and now you're getting Mm -hmm. to see just something closer to what this country different cities and states and what it was all about so it's it's really exciting work absolutely i'll Mm -hmm. I'll totally agree with with that professor newkirk um I had the privilege last year of, of publishing a piece um, that the nation asked me to write about uh, the life of William Dorsey Swan, called The First Drag Queen Was a Former Slave. And um, that piece sort of confirmed for me that, yes, there was interest in overlooked <laughs> lives. And, um, and I think it's helping to prove to, to people who 
had thought that, you know, queer people's lives, queer people's cultures of the past uh, can be researched, can be uncovered, can be reintegrated into the, the narrative of American history and the narrative of who we are. And um, so I think that's a beginning and I'm, I'm, very, I'm very hopeful and very gratified that that's starting. That is really great. Kaita? Yeah, so the New York Public Library, I think earlier this month, um, they did a sort of a, a compilation of consequential Caribbean books broken down by genre and under Caribbean biography, again, slipping in under the cover of biography. <laughs> my grandmother, my great grandmother's uh, image, the one on the book is not the great grandmother I write about, but another great grandmother, but nonetheless, her image next to a book about CLR James and Stuart wow. Hall and these canonical Caribbean intellectuals. And there is my great grandmother who lived a quiet life on a plantation and off of it. And it was just very moving, actually. Like, wow. These lives matter, right? Yeah. It's like all of these lives matter. Yeah. It's amazing that we have to say it. It's when, amazing. When it comes out, you're like, wait, right. why should like, life mattered. Your great grandmother's life mattered. You know, this man who at the turn of the century was having drag balls mattered <laughs> because those stories give other people who are living those lives and have not seen their stories reflected in the culture. It's so validating, right? It's like, mm -hmm. this is real life, but it seems like it's just been erased and forgotten as if it didn't happen, as if these people's lives just were inconsequential. So I think that these are so crucial on multiple levels, each of these biographies, you know, however people come to them, because they're important for telling the story of those specific individuals who were overlooked in their time. They're important for telling the true nature of history during that time. And then they are very relevant, not as relics of the past, but literally reflections of today, of how we've gotten here to people living today who still feel very much overlooked in terms of their mm -hmm. own story. So um, it's an incredible work. And when we talk about the flaws of the archive, you're also remedying it because you think of the next generation and the generation of that of biographers are gonna find your books and they will stand to help serve as sources and uh, models also for how to tell these stories. So there are so many questions. I don't think that we're gonna get to you know, all of them, but um, since you all uh, do have a journalism background, there's one question from Sunny Stalter Pace asking, what skill from your journalism training was the most useful in doing your research? So if you had to pick one skill, what would it be? Tenacity. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to hit so many brick walls and you just got to like go over the wall, under the wall. But to, I think that is what journalism really like, because as Channing was saying, it's like you have to follow so many different threads. There's no straight line. It's like mm -hmm. traditional research skills do not help you with this kind of research. Mm -hmm. Because like I said, so much of the history was told top down through the papers and perspectives of the powerful. So to do that in reverse, um, you hit a lot more dead ends and, and you have to use non-traditional means to get at these subjects, which is why social history becomes important, right? Mm -hmm. To understand the time and to understand what else was going on parallel to that person, because you're not always going to get it's straight through that person. <laughs> you know, you have to do so much reporting around the central subject, and, and that's a lot more challenging. I'll give a, a geeky answer and say I worked as a census reporter in Austin, Texas a long time ago, <laughs> so I had some familiarity with spreadsheets and went kind of crazy using spreadsheets to like, compile all of the quantitative and qualitative data on everyone on my great-grandmother's ship their names, back cast backgrounds, uh, everyone who gave birth on that ship, et cetera, et cetera. And I was able to somehow like create a picture of that ship and who was on that ship. And I did the same thing with 10 years worth of ship records. So I wouldn't that's, have known that's how to That's what do I would call non-traditional research. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Channing? I had to build a family tree for Swan. And I also have this very useful 
sort of social network. You know, when I, I know so-and-so is associated with this, this person I know is friends with so-and-so or um, worked with so-and-so and, and that person worked with so-and-so just to sort of build an idea of how closely connected are the people in this time period that, that I'm looking at. And it's, um, it's amazing the sort of how quickly you get very powerful people all in the same mix, you know, yes. Frederick Douglass and Alexander Stevens and, and all kinds of people, you know, in DC at the same time, Swan is doing his thing. So um, I think that what we're doing, you know, sort of putting back into the, into the record, or maybe for the first time, you know, the stories of people who've been overlooked, I think it's, it's psychological, it's spiritually renewing for a lot of people, you know, to go through your whole life feeling like people like you are not important enough to be represented in history or in the media. And, you know, I think what we're doing is helping to remedy that. And I, and I think that that shows the spiritual importance of history for all of us, you know. Yeah, no, I look at this work as like their interventions. And relatedly, I mean, all of you have a role in academia. And I think one of the things that we hear about is that biographies, even when the, within the realm of uh, history, are, you know, in some ways looked down upon. Or, and then on top of that, if you're writing a biography of an overlooked person, of a marginalized person, of a you know, person of color, you know, whatever the, all the different layers are, how do you approach that, particularly those who are in academia who do want to do this work in a way that is supported by the academy? I'm new to it. (laughs) I've I've only been doing it for two years, teaching that is, but, you know, a bit of advice that others have given to me, I think Pam, you may even have suggested this, it's to, to incorporate your work, your research into your pedagogy so that you're bringing your passion into the classroom and giving it back to the students and at the same time doing your work that you need to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's so many resources and opportunities, even before I started teaching, you know, the Schomburg, uh, the Hutchins Center at Harvard, Leon Levy Center, there are these spaces that can give you the the funding, (laughs) the all-important funding to do the work. I would say that I'm sort of at the intersection of several different things, right? So I teach journalism, but my work is kind of social history, kind of biography, kind of queer history. You know, it it forces me to delve into African-American fashion, dance, um, folklore, song, sexuality, gender. There are lots of things that I've had to learn about from the 19th century, (laughs) early 20th century that were not obvious to me when I began. And I would say on the journalism side, my experience has been people, they're fascinated because they don't, you know, so, so few people in journalism are working in the academic side or working on something similar. Um, I get more from queer historians and queer uh, cultural studies folks and um, African-American history folks. I get really interesting sort of engagement. And uh, from my interactions with queer historians, they tell me, and it's been my experience that this is generally true, there's the assumption that if you're researching a figure of the past, that they are heterosexual and cisgender, default. You have to prove otherwise. <laughs> and I think that, that that assumption is a major stumbling block in some ways for a lot of uh, historians working working on overlooked people. On the, on yeah, but the, it, the, it sounds like you found the ideal character. <laughs> it's like, wow, you hit the mother load. <laughs> How many more are there? Oh my God, <laughs> I know. It's yeah, like... Um, I know we're focusing on research, but just from also from a pragmatic standpoint, because this was something that was very challenging for me, and I'm sure it's a challenge for many others, and it's around how to pitch an unknown subject or overlooked figure to a publisher. You know, Channing, you mentioned that you wrote that excellent piece for The Nation. Did publishing kind of come after that, or, you know, or were you already dedicated to this project? I was already dedicated to the project. For me, um, I think it, again, it goes back to journalism, think like an editor, you know, why would the average person be interested in the person you're writing about? Mm -hmm. And figure out a way to describe or tell the public why the average person would be interested in like two sentences. And if you can do that, then you have a pitch. (laughs) Oftentimes, would you say that they are, they offer, the figure offers a different or alternate view on a historical moment? 
Sometimes that's true. Uh, you or know, it could, or it could speak to a larger issue mm -hmm. that, yeah. like, it taps into something that you could see in new ways through the life of this mm -hmm. person, mm -hmm. like Cooley Woman does. It's like mm -hmm. it's it's talking about a whole group of women who have been overlooked through the story of this one woman. Um, because what you're saying, Channon, is the key. And I think that's why journalists are on this panel, because we're trained to write for a broad audience. Mm. So where academics are trained to write for a very narrow audience, we're mm. trained to write for a general audience. And it makes pitching a little easier for us. Not that it's ever, none of this is easy. Yeah. I don't mean to suggest that. easy, but it's easier. It's easier. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I really appreciate this and honestly I could talk to each of you like all day and honestly this is this is the panel I needed uh, 10 years ago when I was just dreaming about writing the biography and telling me myself all the reasons that I, I couldn't and shouldn't and it, it's not just that I was telling myself there are others who are telling me the words that are used it's too niche it's you know there isn't readers for this and I just uh, didn't you know believe that and I'm so glad that none of you also you know believed that and, and forged forward but I can't believe we're at the end of the hour and I want to say thank you so much to Gayutra Channing and Pamela for this amazing conversation truly and hopefully it was inspiring to others and I want to thank Bio for uh, giving the space for this conversation. And most of all, thank you to all of you attendees for spending part of your Saturday with us. So thank you, everybody. Thank Have you. Thank you. You just heard highlights from the panel discussion, Researching Underdocumented Lives, from Bio's annual conference held virtually in May 2021. It featured authors Gayatra Bahadur, Channing Gerald Joseph, and Pamela Newkirk. It was moderated by BIO member Kavita Das. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a great day.